0: I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. A good way to understand the appeal of Donald Trump is to talk to the people who voted for him. And one of the most interesting ways to approach that is to talk to voters in counties that flipped, long voting for Democratic Party candidates until suddenly, in 2016, they didn't. That's the background for Trump's Democrats a book that looks at three communities that turned to Trumpism after having been solidly blue basically forever. I'm joined today by its authors, Professors Stephanie Moravchik and John A. Shields of Claremont McKenna College. Their fascinating book explores why Trump clicked with these voters and why many of the very things that turned so many of us off about him were the very things they found so appealing. We discuss machine politics, political bosses, honor cultures, localism, and what it means to identify strongly with a narrowly circumscribed place. The story that emerges is a good deal more complex and nuanced than the easy tales we sometimes tell ourselves about us and them. Your book is part of a a genre we have seen come out of, of the Trump years of academics and journalists going to small towns that voted for Trump sitting in diners and asking Trump voters why they believe what they believe. But I think your book is the I think the best example of that that I have come across, the one that I have certainly have learned the most from, and the one that puts the most work into really getting at the ideas motivating Trump supporters. Can you tell us a bit about what prompted this and how you approached this project?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the compliment. We, um, well, this is a book that really started on election night in 2016. Like lots of Americans, I'm sure like yourself, we were up late that night watching the returns come in. And it was really the most astonishing and surprising election in, in our lifetime, in our living memory. And so immediately we were really eager to to get out into the you know outside of our little academic town and and get a feel for what what had happened and and really the in the weeks that followed our sense of surprise really deepened because we well first we discovered that there were all these Obama Trump counties right so there were all these places that had been you know had voted for Obama. On two occasions, in fact, there were over two hundred some counties that did this and then flipped for Trump, and so that itself is very surprising and unusual, especially in this age of polarization where partisan IDs and loyalties are especially sticky. But then quickly we discovered that not only had these, you know, were there all these Obama places that flipped for Trump, we also discovered that a lot of these places had voted Democrat, democratic for a very long time. You know, so many of these places had. Um, had a pretty unbroken record of voting for Democratic presidents, stretching back some to Reagan, some to Nixon, some much further back. In fact, one of the counties we, we ended up studying was uh, a place that had never voted for a Republican president in its history. You know, this is a county formed in the 19th century, and it's really astonishing, right? Had never voted for uh, a Republican. Uh, it's probably the it's probably, you know, in the Western world, probably the longest streak of any polity just voting for one party. And um and so that was interesting. And then, you know, and of course we're we're accustomed to thinking and talking about the the uh Nixon Democrats in 72 or the Reagan Democrats in 84. And then um, but in some ways, in lots of ways, actually, the, the the Trump Democrats were much more interesting, you know. I mean, the Nixon, you know, Nixon won in a huge landslide in 72, as did Reagan in 84. So it's not so surprising in those years that you get Lots of democratic places that flip, you know that's not weird. But in 2016, you had, um, you know, I mean, Trump lost the popular vote, and yet he managed to win. He managed to win some of the most loyal um, democratic communities in the country. Despite that, so we got we got really interested in not just the sort of red-blue divide, but a divide that had opened up in blue America, and so we were curious we wanted to make sense of what had happened, you know, why, you know, in our college community, Trump is a, you know, a, a load figure, you know, a sort of proto-authoritarian, um, a dangerous person. And, you know, we, we more or less agree with that point of view. I think there's a lot to that. But uh, but then there's all these other democratic communities that see him in exactly, um, in a radically different way. And, and they see him as one of the greatest presidents of, you know, in American history. And so, we were really deeply interested in, in, in that question. And, 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 then, and then all these places we studied in 2016, I should add, remain loyal to, to Trump in 2020. And so these are places that are really drifting in, into the Republican Party. And Trump is the, is the character who, 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 brought him, who brought all those, you know, shepherded all these communities into the Republican column. And so that, that's quite interesting. So that's how we got interested in, in, in the project.
0: You mentioned the Nixon and Reagan and so on, and we have seen if trump is a trumpism represents a populist movement, we have seen prior waves of things that look like populism the the most recent probably being the tea party movement and as you point out the the three communities that you looked at didn't go they didn't go republican they didn't vote tea party candidates. What was different was it something about That had happened to them, i.e., like you know, economic changes had happened that hurt these communities, and said, "Now it's time to vote for Republicans." So it was, it was something about the community, or was there something that really set Trump apart from past populist candidates or waves?
2: Well, I mean, I think one piece of it is is just how deeply blue these communities were, and that the Tea Party really emerged out of places that had some significant Republican organization, movement, identification, um, and that there simply weren't enough Republicans on the ground to um, get attention for, in most of the places, Iowa might have been a little differently, but certainly in in Rhode Island and Kentucky, um, you know, we had one Democratic uh, sort of local level Party leader say to us in in Rhode Island, we were asking him about his relationship with Republicans. He said, "I don't know any Republicans in this town. Like, I don't think there are any. You know, there just wasn't even enough for the most knowledgeable um, uh, Democratic leadership to know them. And so, I think part of it was that it would have been hard to get the attention uh, of the um, of the of the local Democrats. And then the other piece that I think stands out." um, is that there, there was a lot of libertarian rhetoric out of the Tea Party. There's some controversy about, you know, how top down that was, how astroturf that was, et cetera. But, but, um, that libertarian rhetoric is really not at all resonant with the Democrats that we talked to. That was not the piece of the populism that appealed to them. So I think that's another piece of the answer. I don't know, John, do you have
1: Well, yeah, I would just simply add, I mean, uh, I guess this is really echoing what Stephanie said, but you have to keep in mind these are places, these are really one party towns. And so, and the party locally for these folks is really the individual, really the individuals who lead the party, right? So the county level or town level elected officials. So these are mayors, city council people, county commissioners. And they're really sort of the face of the party, and in a lot of ways, they'd insulated. I mean, the other thing to add to this, they'd really insulated these local communities from national politics in some ways. So a lot, a lot of ways, these places were pretty provincial. When they thought about the Democratic Party, they didn't think, um, they didn't think about national leaders for the most part. They thought about people in their own community, and so one of the things that Trump really did. Um, is he really shook these communities? It was sort of a shock to them, and and really got them sort of thinking about national politics and questions and controversies. And it really took someone like a Trump uh, to do that. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, so the Tea Party was something that just didn't, you know, it 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 was a movement that was pretty um, pretty remote. Uh, from uh, from a lot of these places.
0: I, one of the really interesting parts of this book is when you're talking about how politics worked, or works in these small towns, and how you know, as someone, I'm reading it, sitting inside the Beltway, having that as my frame of reference of politics. I've mostly lived in big cities and so on, uh, and where national politics is about. You know, during the Trump years, it was that he's he's pushing up against the guardrails if not you know leaping right over them we have our norms and institutions and that's that's the way that we tend to talk about these things and it was fascinating the stories that the two of you tell about how different politics is in these small communities can you talk a bit about that because it's that also you say plays into a part of trump's appeal
1: yeah sure i mean it, one of the things that really struck us aaron is that in these communities, politics is much more Trumpian in all kinds of ways. It was Trumpian before Trump, right? So the local public officials uh, reminded us of Trump in various ways. They were, they were thin-skinned, they were brazen, they were tough, um, they were macho. They, they were sort of, lo- sort of the local daddies of their communities, right? They were sort of there to take care of their flock, um, so that is to say, they weren't particularly ideological. Um, rather, they were—it was a sort of friends and neighbor politics, right? They were going to um, do particular favors um, or provide for particular constituents. It, it 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 echoed back to a sort of machine politics, which has deep roots in the Democratic Party. So politics in these places weren't very ideological, really. You know, they were much more boss-centered, right? Uh, they were about, you know, um, um, they were really about um, providing for and taking care of local constituents. And so political leaders were expected to um, to to do favors for their constituents. Um, and so we saw all of this in all kinds of ways. Maybe Steph wants to just jump in, and you give some examples of to give some flavor and feel for some of these these characters.
2: Yeah, there were um, in all three of the places in um, this town in Rhode Island, this uh, city in Iowa, and this um, county in in eastern Kentucky. There had been a strong boss politics, and and um, perhaps most uh, strong in Kentucky, which these little rural counties are often dominated by. Uh, these people called judges. They're not judicial figures. they're executive count they're county executives, essentially. Um, and uh, they uh, there was a man in the county that I was looking at uh, who had held office almost continually for about thirty years. Um when I arrived there, uh, you know, during the Trump administration, he had been out of office. Uh, due to the fact that um, he had been brought up on federal charges in a votes for gravel scheme. Uh, This was um, after about some 30 years of office, the county had fallen on hard times, and so the main way that he was able to show his friendship to voters was by providing loads of gravel to them at county expense. And so a lot of these people live on little sort of far-flung farms in this rural district. And uh, they they need to have little roads that connect their farmsteads to the main sort of public arteries. And they need to be constantly refreshed with gravel. And he was dumping loads of gravel before, um, you know, in the months leading up to an election. And, uh, and so the, uh, the feds came after him and he, um, he, he, uh, pled, I mean, he had to deal with them basically that, uh, that he would not be, you know, he'd go, you know, sort of be, be free, but that he would, he pledged never again to run for office. And, um, so the County sort of political imagination had been very shaped by this man's long reign, uh, and, and he, was, he remained a very popular, although controversial figure in the county when I was there.
1: Yeah, and there was echoes of this too, in another town we studied, which is Johnston, Rhode Island. And on the surface, you might think it looks it would be a place with a radically different politics than Appalachia, right? It's in New England. It's a suburb uh, of Providence. Uh, but in many ways, actually, the politics was really similar. It's a very Italian-American um, uh, uh, community, and they still practice a kind of old-style machine politics. The mayor there is Joe Policina. He rules with an iron fist, and he's sort of like the, he's sort of like, again, he's sort of like everyone's daddy, right? People go to Joe. They need something done. They need a favor. Um, sometimes they ask for things he can't deliver. Uh, so when we last, Joe about this, he said, yeah, sometimes they'll come in, you know, my constituents, and they'll ask for something off the wall, and Joe will have to tell them, gee, I can't do that. That's illegal, you know, but I can I can do some, something else. And likewise, people in that community feel like if they don't support the machine, if they don't support Joe Policina and other Democratic candidates, um, that they'll be basically shut out, right? That they, they won't be able to get their, their um, their their you know, any, any goods from the city uh, because they'll be punished by the mayor right? Who can be very vindictive. Um, So again, you know, very different seemingly kinds of communities. Um, They're regionally different. One's rural, one's suburban, et cetera, Uh, but a a very different um, style of politics. But it's a kind of politics that used to dominate the Democratic Party. And we sort of forget about it in college towns and big urban cities because we've cleaned up this kind of politics, right? We want something, uh, we want a politics that's more policy-oriented, um, uh, a politics without nepotism, uh, without uh, wheeling and dealing in this sort of favoritism. Uh, but it's a kind of politics that survived in a lot of these democratic communities. Uh, and it survived in those places because there are fewer sort of college-educated, you know, good government types who, who wanted to clean up this kind of politics and get rid of it. So that's one way um, in which um, uh, you know, these the politics of these places were, was distinctive. Uh, but they also had a particular political culture, and we could talk about that if you like, Aaron.
0: Just briefly before we turn to that, I'm curious, do the people in those towns view this as a kind of politics that needs to be cleaned up but just can't for various reasons? Or do they think this is the right way to do politics, even if it sometimes is a little messy and looks kind of corrupt?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely... Um there is definitely a, a view among some voters. I mean, these, these men are all, and they're all men. Um, uh, these men are all somewhat controversial and have their, have their detractors who don't like how personalized the politics are. Um, you know, I spoke to one, Um uh Mayor Paulicina in in uh Johnson, Rhode Island is is very widely popular. He gets very high margins in elections and lots of people had lots of good things to say about him. But he did have his detractors, and I was trying to talk to one of them, and um he was quite anxious about talking to me and, and sort of said, Well, you know how things are in this town. And then he sort of paused a beat, and then he said, Well you know you're not from here maybe you don't and so there was this sense of like um that 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 there were that there were critics and they would often say this is too personalized there's too much retribution for disloyalty we should be this is america we should be able to express alternate opinions and and not be sort of personally penalized by the powers that be in our locality for this um uh, one colorful example from Elliott County uh, was, you know, uh, the executive who was no longer in office because of this federal deal um, had one very outspoken opponent in the community, and he, when when the when they would be paving roads like county roads. The, the the new the new asphalt would stop at this man's property line and then start up again at the next property line. So only in front of his farm would there be no paving. So the, that kind of stuff rubs some people the wrong way for sure.
1: Yeah, I I, I would just echo that. I mean, I think it was um, you know somewhat mixed um, and. You know, but I think there was also a sort of sense in these places that this is just how one does politics. You know, this is sort of the main models of politics, and it wasn't clear, I think, to many what sort of the alternative to this to this might look like. And in many ways, it's a sort of model that grows up, you know, out of their own community. You know, it's the kind of politics that that is a grows out of a traditional family in some ways, right? It's the sense that well, there's a patron sort of patriarch, who's sort of the head of the head of the household, but also the head of the, the community. And they should provide and take care of their community. And in exchange, they should get the loyalty uh, of their constituents and their supporters. So there's also a sense that, you know, that their loyalty is the main way that they pay back the their benefactors right those who have, who have supported them so even if they have some misgivings or grumblings or they think the mayor can be a little too iron-fisted or whatever there's also a sense that they should be loyal to that person because they owe them something
0: given all of that and given the personal and transactional nature of the politics and politics as extended family so you describe it if the the initial motivation of this book and the ethnographies that you you conducted was we have there was something new about trump or trumpism or trump as a candidate and it attracted what had been historically very very blue exclusively blue communities so these were democratic strongholds but given all of this within this context what does it mean for them to have been democrat because you said this wasn't this wasn't really about policy per se so were they were they meaningfully democratic in the way that we would think about it, you know, from the perspective of looking broadly at American politics, there's Democrats represent a set of policy preferences and a certain coalition. Do they even fit within that? Or was it more just this was a label, but they could have had a different one slapped on and it would have been meaningfully indistinct?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that that became very clear was that because of the relationships with these sort of party elites in their local community and and that that the party the what the party meant meant relationships with these local party leaders and what they understood Democrat to mean had been very much reflected uh, uh, or, or you know filtered through these local party leaders uh they uh, a lot of their i would say social cultural um ideas were quite conservative and some of them made a point of saying i'm a i'm i'm a democrat and i'm a conservative and um so for uh, example on we met a um a woman in Rhode Island who was from a deeply political family herself had been a local level sort of low local level political leader. So not someone who was out of touch or disengaged at all. Um, and she talked about her it, the, the revelation that the Democrats were pro-choice. And for her, this was kind of a shock. She had to wake up to this fact because she herself and her family were fierce Democrats. She had been told since she was a child that if the Republicans get into power, we'll all starve. And it was that kind of rhetoric we've heard from a lot of people. Um, But she was also from this deeply Catholic, church-going, mass-going family. And she said she would go to mass and see her elected local leaders also taking communion. And it never crossed her mind these people uh, would not be pro-life. And so um, on a lot of the social-cultural issues Um, there was a, um, uh, in, in Elliott County, which was very rural, the the issue, a lot one big issue had to do, of course, with guns and the second amendment. All the Democrats were very pro second amendment in Elliott County. And it never, they, they, you know, they, they didn't feel a sense of cognitive dissonance, um, because the party was so locally, um, their understanding was so local.
1: Yeah, it's good, and and as Stephanie suggested too. I mean, they do have, in some ways, they do have a sense that, I mean, you know, as Steph mentioned, I mean, they have a sense that Republicans are the party of the rich. Um, so that sort of resonates with what a lot of Democrats might say about the Republican Party and have said for a long time. Um, but it's a very sort of class-bound, you know, sort of New Deal Democratic sense of the parties, and so um, and indeed, you know, I mean, in some of the Restaurants in these towns, you we you know, there it was not uncommon to find pictures of JFK or FDR. Um, so they had a sense; those were sort of the the patron saints of the party. They did have a sense that there was um, that they were part of something larger than their own local particular community. Um, but as Steph mentioned, I mean, they didn't. It's true. I mean, they, it's sort of like the culture wars, where this thing that was sort of blowing beyond their their own you know, their own local, local lives. And they didn't have a sense of where the parties landed on guns or abortion or, um, those kinds of questions. And that, that surprised us, you know, that was, that was interesting. Um, and in lots of ways, of course, these people are, you know, on a lot of these issues, um, they're kind of conservative, you know, these are, um, they, they're pretty pro second amendment. They're fairly pro life. Um, and although on, you know, on economic questions, they're more moderate or even left-leaning. In like Iowa, for example, there is a strong, there's a big, it's a place with a big meat packing plant. There's a strong tradition of unionism there. So basically, it's sort of like, you know, if you froze the northern, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party in the north in like 1960 and took a peek at it. Um, it's, it's, it's more like what these places are like. And it, it almost felt like going back in time a little bit to be in these communities, right? Like we got to peer at the old Democratic Party as it used to be. And we're, we're reminded that it didn't all change overnight, you know, that that there are still these vestiges of this old party that have endured partly because they're kind of isolated and they have this strong localism and, they, and the local elites sort of buffer them from some of the big changes that are happening at the national level and indeed if you talk to local people one of the major things they're trying to do is create their own brand right because they know that there's a big ideological divide between them and the national party and so they want to you know they want to re- keep the democratic party as localized as they can and Trump has made that a lot harder for them in all kinds of ways because a lot of these folks are starting to think you know are are, are starting to to become more aware of the the national party and the ways in which it's different from their local party.
0: So the, one of the broad theses of, of your book is that Trump appealed to these communities in part because the very things that those of us in our coastal, rootless, cosmopolitan enclaves were dramatically, viscerally often turned off by about him were the very things that felt the most familiar. To the voters in these communities about him. And so just discussed, he looked like the politicians that they're used to. And so what we in we saw as corruption, as like wild corruption and nepotism and so on, was just business as usual. That's of course how politicians operate. So I want to move to the another one that you discussed, which is honor cultures. Because Trump for many of us was this famously belligerent but thin-skinned bully who couldn't back down was just constantly anytime anyone said anything he needed to come back at them even if it looked he looked ridiculous doing it and so on and and it seemed it seemed very off-putting to all of us but as you point out this is this is like a quintessentially honor culture so what what is an honor culture and why do we see it in communities like this
2: well um Another culture is um, a a way of understanding uh, reputation and conflict that that makes it imperative that a person, particularly a man, demonstrates his toughness, his um, willingness to meet any insult or any certainly an assault, but even just an insult with a kind of fierceness and a willingness to use violence uh, to avenge his his reputation, to establish, to reestablish his reputation, and um, this is not something. This is not a. You you have men in all these communities have all kinds of personalities, just like in any other community. Um, but they understand that they're expected to do this, and if they don't, they risk really losing status in their communities, um, and they also risk inviting further uh, insult and even violence. And so, um, I think the, um, this was, it was, uh, pervasive in all three communities. I think some of the most colorful examples probably come from Ottumwa, um, from Iowa. Do you want to?
1: Well, there's a lot of examples. I mean, I would just say by way of defining honor culture, just add that it's on the one hand, it's, it's unfamiliar to a lot of folks who live in highly educated bubbles, like college towns and, you know, blue urban centers, but it's, you know it's 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 sort of the default culture in a way right it's sort of it's it exists around the world it still exists in lots of places in the united states um and and so it's it's um so it's much more common um it's it, you know it's a much more common mode of um conflict re- resolution than we than we often um sort of imagine um you know the play Hamilton reminds us that it used to exist among in our national political culture, right? Because after all, Hamilton died in a duel defending his honor. Um, uh, But that play sort of misleads us too, because it sort of suggests that this honor culture is some ancient, barbaric, strange cultural thing that, you know, existed in the past and we've done away with it. But in fact, as Steph said, it existed in all of these in all of these communities, and I guess we should give some examples. I mean, um, I guess I before I get to Iowa, I would start with with Rhode Island. There, um, the mayor Policina, very much practiced this honor culture, and we first saw this really in action uh, during a town council meeting, <laughs> uh, because every month or so, Joe Policina holds court, and various citizens come and they offer, you know, they have various complaints and they want to sort of give the mayor a hard time. And um Mayor Policina doesn't doesn't do what politicians might do in, say, our college town, right, when they when they hear a complaint. When Polic- when people come to complain to Policina, he gives them hell, right? He he starts calling them names, right? So in fact, and it doesn't matter who they are. In fact, there's one old woman who used to consistently go and sort of complain to him and he would just let her have it. You know, Policino would say, you're a malcontent, um, right? Um, um, later, as as the meeting spilled out in, into the parking lot, he even audibly called her a douchebag. Um, so he's, um, you know, he doesn't mince words. And when we asked him about this, we said, Joe, you know, what are you doing? You know, why why are you, why are you so rough with these constituents, right? Why can't you, Um, you know, why can't you do what Michelle Obama does, right? Or or suggest, right? She said, when they go low, we go high. Uh, Why can't you take the high road? Um, And his response was very telling. He says, no, I can't do that. If I do that, they're just going to roll over me, right? It's going to show my weakness. They're going to take advantage of me. And so he said, look, I have to be a street fighter when it comes to politics. I have to be tough right? Because that's the only thing that people understand, right, is strength. And we saw this again, as Steph suggested, in Otamwa. In, in the there, um, a fight nearly broke out at a local Democratic county meeting between uh, a county commissioner who supported, this is back in 2016 during the primaries. So the county commissioner was a guy named Jerry Parker. He supported Hillary Clinton, and there was a guy named Alex Stroda who was on the other side, and they were fighting over who to endorse. And it nearly came to blows, right? It was basically, you know, um, there was a belly bump, uh, but not a not an actual fight. Um, and again, you know, those were two guys who couldn't just talk it out, right? There was a sense that um, you know, a disagreement had to be and an insult. Had to be um, uh, had to be forcefully um, confronted, right? Um, so that was sort of normal in these places, and that's um, that's also how Trump operates, right? For Trump, you're either a strong person or you're a weak person, and that's how um, that's how he divides the world. And nationally speaking, you know, some of the candidates that gravitated toward Trump early also shared some of that honor culture. I mean, you think about, you know, guys like Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie, you know, they too have some of that in them. Um, and um, so, yeah, so that's that's a flavor for for this culture. So to sum up, too, I guess the final thing we'd say is that, you know, Trump, I think you, you said this well, um, uh, Aaron, but, you know, Trump. To us, to people in our community, Trump seems like he's, he's pathologically thin-skinned. You know, he's, and maybe he is, right? I'm sure Trump has all kinds of personality disorders, but that's not how it's necessarily read in the communities we studied. To them, his behavior is totally normal, right? It's totally normal, right? Of course, of course you punch back. Of course you don't let things roll off your back, right? That's not how politicians behave in their communities, and so he doesn't seem weird, right? Even if he is on some level, right? Even if he does have all kinds of personality disorders, which I'm sure he does, he doesn't read quite that way in these places.
0: Was there a sense because you had you're, you're conducting these interviews after Trump has been in office for a bit, so they've they've gotten to see him not just in the bluster of a candidate, but actually as the leader of the free world. The disconnect between how they perceive him and how he is perceived elsewhere. So for example, you you quote a handful of people about this he's a tough guy. And so one one guy and I'll just I'll just read the quote He says, I think other countries are afraid of him, which I think is a good thing. I hate to say it, but with Bush and Obama, they were pushovers. With Trump, he's not a pushover. You're going to have to deal with him. There's no playing games with him, which is really striking because it became very clear in Trump's presidency that other world leaders were just constantly playing games with him, that they they saw this. They saw his thin skinness, his reactivity, his susceptibility to flattery, and they just manipulated the hell out of him. And so no one really was they were maybe afraid of him in the sense that he was a loose cannon but they weren't afraid of him as a tough guy that they had to take seriously were the communities aware of that disconnect of how he was perceived on the world stage
2: no i i think i think that the the idea of a a, a leader that might speak quietly and carry a big stick just doesn't um make a lot of sense to them and uh, and so in their own, um, in their own sphere of, um, of understanding the, the, the way that you make people understand that you will not be messed with is through this sort of thin skin response is this kind of machismo. And, and so I think that they, that that was, you know, how they understood. Um, I was at a church service, in Kentucky and um and the minister there was trying to get the uh uh the, the churchgoers to um take be more assertive in their faith and he said you know growing up my brother my big brother always taught me basically he meant in in the context of um of uh working at a job site like a construction site uh don't back up never back up and and that was seen as sort of a deep truth uh, that had ap- application in all realms of life. Uh, and I think so when they heard Trump making those sounds, um, you know, it's a pretty high level, it, it's a pretty um policy-wonkish person who could then read and, and sort of trace actually what 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 the consequences might have been, which which you were just alluding to um I, and i don't think they they were they they understood that he was he was doing the script correctly
1: yeah i think it's impar- it's important to bear in mind that what's happening here is a kind of identity politics so when they see a candidate like trump who behaves in ways that that are familiar to them uh, in ways that they might behave in ways that their leaders might behave it signals to them that this candidate is one of them, you know, and that's how most that's how most voters um, behave, right? They don't they don't think very systematically for the most part uh, about politics or ideology. Really, they're interested in candidates and whether to, and the extent to which they 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 feel some sorts of uh, a social proximity to them, and the closer they feel to them, the more they feel like they can trust them. Right. And so uh, I think uh, the people we talk to just have a sense that Trump, because he seems familiar, because he seems trustworthy, he'll do the right thing in these in these, you know, um, on the international stage in these in in these contacts that are sort of really removed from um, from their from their knowledge or expertise And uh, so, you know, I mean, you know, like my – so in that way, they're really different from sort of the wonky people, you know, one might meet in D.C. who are pulling their hair out because Trump is is getting rolled, you know, by China and Putin, et cetera.
0: One of the other things that gets characteristics of Trumpism, and and it was certainly present throughout Trump's campaign, was nationalism and then what looked like – often racist dog whistles, if not just quite audible whistles, and and that has seemed to be a characteristic is that Trumpism and, and Trump supporters are intensely nationalistic and often have, call them racially charged views, but what you found pushes back on that, at least in some ways, and you argued has more to do with with sense of place, can you talk about the how how sense of place plays out and what that says about say let's start with with nationalism as a Trumpist phenomenon?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think all so all three of these were place, places we chose precisely because they represented uh, a larger group of counties mostly that had voted twice for Obama and then flipped, and we were sort of interested in part because uh, that that um, seemed to be complicating what seemed like a clear-cut story of the kind of uh, sort of bigoted appeal, uh, the appeal of bigotry that the Trump campaign represented. Um, And then spending time there, what really stuck out in all three of the places was the localism. And and we've talked about some facets of that. Um, But these were all places where the... the, uh, where the people who lived there, um, felt deeply, deeply connected to their hometowns. Um, and even so much that in the Johnston, Rhode Island community, uh, uh, that we were in, they had had, they had long had a phrase that was Johnston first, uh, long before Trump was on the political, uh, uh, landscape, um, that there was a sense that, of of belonging to each other and needing to help each other and work for the community. Um, and this sometimes uh, then resonated out to a kind of nationalistic um, uh, commitment. So, for example, in Ottumwa, Iowa, uh, where there were these strong unions, where there had been the, the car industry, Um, a lot of the people were very, um, you know, it it was difficult to, to buy a non-American made car in a Tumwa and, and, uh, that was part of their, they linked sort of a Tumwa to the, to the nation in a sense. And, um, uh, but in all of these places, there was that intense localism. So for example, I was, um, asking some women in Elliott County, Kentucky, uh, Early on, um, one of them mentioned that they had read um, "Hillbilly Elegy" by J.D. Vance, uh, and there were some other women at, at, at the conversation that I was having, and and the the women, the other women hadn't heard of the book, but they said, "Oh, was he from Elliot? and and then the response was, "Well, no, because he's actually from another county that's like a couple, an hour or two away, also part of you know Eastern Appalachia." Um, in fairly indistinguishable from my eyes, but when they were told, no, 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 not from Elliott County, from this other uh, county, they all sort of lapsed. Like, oh, okay, well, that's a different county. We don't know about that county. Um, so even even this um, the county boundaries of this tiny rural county really mattered to the sort of civic imagination of the residents there.
1: Yeah, the the other thing I'd, I'd say along these same lines is. You know, when, when they, these are all places um, that are struggling to varying degrees and have been for quite some time. And so when Trump came around and said he was going to make America great again, what they heard is not so much that he was going to make the nation writ large great again in some, you know, in some general way, what they heard rather is that he was going to make Ottumwa great again and Elliot great again and Johnston great again and so that very nationalistic rhetoric they heard in this very localized way and those communities um so uh, and and the fate of those communities matter uh to them um partly because you know they their their social identities are so connected to those places right that that's you know in these communities is where they're really socially known, where they really have reputations, where all their kin are, where all their kin are buried. And so to leave those places because they can't find the jobs or um, uh, that they, they might need, for example, is a kind of social death. And here it's a really a class-based difference, right? So if Steph and I get offered a job at say Harvard <laughs> and um, we go, um our social reputation actually enhances right because the nature of our communities is really different it's not neighborhood based it's not especially place based you know we are known um our, our communities are much more based in our professions um and so you know we're having this conversation with you across thousands of miles and and um and and that's sort of the nature of our community right we don't know our neighbors all that well um, and it's certainly not the center. Uh, it's not really where our social identities are fundamentally based. Um, so, you know, the fate of these communities matters in a sort of existential way to them. In a way that I think it's sort of sometimes hard for, um, you know, those of us who are part of the professional class uh, to notice and to see. The other quickly thing I'd say about race is, you know, it's. Um, I mean, as as we mentioned, I mean, these are places that voted for Obama twice. Um, and so, in that way, they're also different from places that were touched by the Tea Party. I mean, as soon as you get, you know, as soon as Obama's elected, you get the Tea Party, and I'm sure some of that was, you know, racially driven. You know, it was our first black president. Um, uh, but um, that wasn't, you know, notably, it wasn't these communities. You know, Obama really didn't create um, um, some massive counter mobilization. Uh, in these places, right? These place These are places that voted for him twice. They, had, you know, Obama was their president for eight years. Um, some of these places did go, did grow disenchanted with him uh, in the second term, and particularly in Elliott County, where you know the policies of the Biden administration was particularly hard on, um, uh, you know, on the coal industry there. But for the most part, these weren't places that had some allergy uh, to Obama, right? These were places that, in fact, voted for him and supported him. And so I think there's, um, and in general, I think we would say, and I think we'd say that to those studying Trump is that I think the one, I mean, I think it is true on the one hand that these folks, um, they do think of Trump as a kind of patron of the white working class in some ways. I mean, I think that's true. Um, I do think they've they especially by today they're incre- things have become more racialized. you know I'm sure if we went back into these communities um, the you know in the wake of BLM and everything else, um, the the racial politics has changed um, and 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 perhaps they they think of themselves more fundamentally as you know sort of white citizens and that. You know, um, um that's probably likely. Uh but when we arrived there, um I guess we were struck by the fact that they didn't particularly, you know, think in those terms. And their social identities were much more class-based, uh, they're much more place-based. Um and um and and I think we have to keep in mind that however much, you know, however much race plays a role, uh, their identities are you know their their politics aren't reducible to race either um uh, that they're that they have other social identities and um and um you know and and that I think that's hopeful in some ways
2: yeah i'll just um to to sort of just put a point on on the comment well, with one example that comes to mind in terms of Elliott county um you know, in Elliott County is a particularly Elliott County, Kentucky is a particularly white area. There's it's just a very um, there, there's very few people that are non-white. Uh, it's in, very-
1: in fact, if I could just add, I mean, I think it's the whitest county that voted for Obama, uh, uh, which makes it an interesting. Yeah,
2: and uh, and so all the um, all the sort of political conflict there. Um, that sometimes can be racially charged in other places all happens within white. So, for instance, when there's lots of grumbling about welfare and they're all looking at their white neighbors who are ethnically, religiously identical, racially identical to them. Um, and uh, one thing I discovered among some of the older, this is not common among the younger, but the older um, people in Elliott County will sometimes complain about foreigners. And when they talk about foreigners, they mean people from Ohio who are coming across the border or other counties, uh, other white people. Uh, uh, so so they, they can, you know, when the, there's lots of talk about uh, distinctions, sort of invidious distinctions between us and them or between, you know, othering someone in the in the jargon of the academy. But in this case, they're othering white Ohioans. Um, and so the racial divisions aren't always the the most important divisions to them,
1: right. And just a quick footnote to that. I mean, it's it's it it should remind us that in some ways, their identities are much more provincial than than whiteness. You know, white America. That's a pretty big group of people. And, um, it's not a it's not a for the most part, it didn't seem like that was a community they felt especially close to. And as Steph said, you know, they feel, uh, they feel like their wh- white neighbors in a neighboring county um, are, in some ways, outsiders, right, and and not not part of their community.
0: The main issue of Trump's campaign, the thing that he ran on and and drove home from early on his presidency, was was anti-immigration. That was that was his hobby horse. Is it then the case that for for these communities, an anti-immigration view is less about? Race, ethnicity, nationality, immigrants with their their weird languages and weird foods, and more that if your community is intensely socially interconnected in a way that makes it look more like an extended family, then the immigrants look like the person who marries into that family and has a hard time fitting in because they didn't grow up in it, then they're you know, they physically look different from us.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you could see this in um I think most notably actually in Otumwa, Iowa, which of the three communities we studied has the highest level of immigration. And they've come there really to work the meatpacking plant. Um and you know, I, I I do think there's there's something to what you're you're saying, right? There's a sense that um uh, there's a sense that these folks are um outsiders who don't quite who do don't quite share our our norms and um and and therefore it's harder to have the kind of tightly knit you know homogeneous community and we know from research on social capital that ethnic diversity at least in the short and medium term um you know un- undermines community and feelings of trust and belonging and so, diversity is a challenge to community. And if your community is fundamentally neighborhood based, um, then immigration is is you know, uh, you know, is 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 can can be a cost to those 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 communities. Um, you know, and, and again, it's it's really kind of quite a contrast from our college town. I mean, here, you know, it, we benefit from immigration in all kinds of ways. You know, we have um, you know, we pay immigrants to, you know, in California, Southern in California, they cut our lawns, they clean our houses, they care for our children. Um, they allow us to neglect our neighborhoods, right. And tend to the communities that we care about, which is really our sort of broader, professional, more diffuse, virtual kinds of communities. But in places like Atomwa, you know, those communities again are much more neighborhood based. There is signs though that, that you know, that does sort of change over time as immigrants become part of the community. And this is why I think it's has more to do with culture than race. Um, I mean, one, one, for example, told us about one of his neighbors, uh, or about, really about the Latinos in the community generally. He said, well, they're not even, um, uh, you know, Mexican anymore because they don't speak Spanish, you know? And it was his way of saying, you know, um, this it was a sort of interesting way of saying this was fundamentally about race right like um right they um they may right they may look a little different but what matters is that they've sort of socially and culturally integrated um, you know in, in in into the community
0: looking forward then for those of us who are deeply worried about what Trumpism represents on the national stage, look back at the four years that he was in office and the, I think the real damage it did to America and its institutions and so on, and are worried about the, the continuing prevalence of of this, often what are fundamentally illiberal views in in the American electorate, what lessons should we draw from this in terms of you know, these people are speaking to genuine interest in cultural needs and affiliations and you the book is is very good at pointing out how much those of us in the the cosmopolitan cities don't understand the way that class really works there's a there's a, a very nice line in it where you mention how much in colleges the you know the the future generations of progressive leaders are taught lots of courses in gender and race but very little if not, if anything, at all, in in class and how important class is to this conversation. so what what lesson should we draw from what you learned in these communities as far as understanding and and preventing some of this from turning into the kind of really dangerous liberalism that I think we all that we all fear?
1: well, i I think it is certainly heading that way. You know, when we were in these communities at the time, you know it was still it was still relatively early in their romance with Donald Trump so they were not talking a lot of crazy conspiracy theory um and um and now we're at really at a different place and i think partly you know partly what it highlights is the dangers of of identity politics in some ways i mean you know these are folks who who, you know, Trump has become there's a sort of cultishness that has really grown around Trump. And we were, again, we were sort of there and saw the beginning, beginnings of that. But we were just at a fact at a rally in in Wyoming. Um and uh and Trump was there to to you know officially nominate Harriet Hageman, who's taking on Liz Cheney. And, you know, we saw lots of, it, 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 it it was, everyone was in their Trump gear, you know, like everyone had Trump t-shirts, lots of folks had Trump flags. Um, and it felt, it felt, if you've been to an NFL game, you know, it sort of had that feel to it, you know, like everyone's on the, um, on the same, same team rooting right together. And it, um, and so, and, you know, and, and, maybe that would be okay if the, you know, if Trump was less reckless and, and, um, and I think what's, I I think in many ways we're, we're in this moment because of Trump's, uh, you know, Trump's bad character, not so much that he appealed to people's place-based or class-based identities and mobilized this other, you know, this, this group of folks, but that, um, but that the power of those the power of that social connection um has been so badly abused uh by him and so recklessly done uh, you know um exploited um so i, I think what it's uh, in a way we you know i i think i i think there'll be more responsible people i hope there'll be more responsible people who will um who will follow some of his example and leave other parts of it behind. You know, there'll be folks who will say, yes, you know, I I, I think there's responsible ways to appeal to these folks. Um, Partly because there is a decent, I think it's important to remember, there was, there's a sort of decent part of this, of this world, right? There's sort of a decent morality there. Not all of it exports well up to the national level. So, you know, I think honor culture, for example, for reasons we can explain we think we think that is maybe it's not great anywhere but it works much better locally um and when it's exported up to the national level it doesn't it doesn't play out well um, um but there are folks who i think are trying to take some of the you know some of the trump's playbook um one good example um is um uh, this candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, uh, Fetterman, who's uh, a Democrat uh, and very Trumpy in all kinds of ways, um, he even if if you haven't bothered to look, he's got uh, on one of his forearms um, he has um, he has the zip code a huge a huge tattoo of the zip code of his hometown, and you know and, and talk about right appealing to place-based identities, right? This guy's really figured it out. And on his other arm, he has um, the names of all those who died in his community while he was mayor, right? Again, very sort of personal um, kind of, um, right, concern about his own own hometown and community. And so, look, I don't know if he'll be, um, what kind of governor he would be if, if he makes it that far. Uh, but it strikes me that's particularly for Democrats who are thinking about how to, uh, or even really Republicans, right, who are thinking about how do you, uh, you know, how do you mobilize some of these social identities in a way that's less reckless than Trump? I, th- I think it can be done, um, and, um, and 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 uh, and again, that's partly. And I think it'd be done responsibly, and that's partly because there's um, there's something you know there's something admirable and something to like about um the localism of of these folks
2: yeah i think a, um a lot of the um things that we found that we highlight in our book are the moral vision behind them has to be understood even something like the boss nature of politics which is often something that's considered um very sleazy in, in the kind of communities that, you know, John and I have lived um, really has a lot to do with uh, this, this ethic of, of friendship and loyalty. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a way that voters understand friendship and loyalty um, more than any sort of policy minded way of assessing candidates. You know, I had one one very you know a, a woman tell me actually a few people say things like this but one woman comes to mind in uh kentucky who was very disengaged voter um and worked a minimum wage pretty crappy job uh and she said but she was one of the defenders of this sort of disgraced county executive and she said well at least when David was in office, you could get a load of gravel gravel when you needed one, and and it was her sense of like this this was this was a true mark of friendship. This you know, and um, so I think that that certainly the boss style politics, which has to do with personal loyalty, which of course resonates very large with the kind of unusually intense following that that Trump has at the national uh, level. Um, the localism again is about sort of community and loyalty, and and so I think s- s- candidates that can s- speak that kind of cultural jargon can signal that um, that that it's more important to signal that than it is to have it policies. Um, that are the policies aren't the draw i guess you know i i saw some trump voters who said to me trump democrats who in kentucky who said oh we have great internet uh we got that under the obama administration um but there was no sense of like that that event that that they gave credit to the Obama administration for this policy that clearly helped them. And they sort of giggled about, or same with Obamacare. We saw people in Rhode and say, oh, well, yes, I am dependent on Obamacare, but didn't give much credit. I think that what they want is a feeling of being represented by someone they can identify with and trust. And, and they're much more attuned to social cultural clues. Maybe all of us are uh, when, when um, picking candidates.
0: Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of The Unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.